You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I am Kenneth. And tonight we are looking at Season 2, Episode 12 of Star Hunter Redux, the episode entitled Pandora's Box. And the episode synopsis goes something like this. Evil scientists aboard Carrie's station are doing evil things. In this case, blowing up a planet in secret. Elsewhere, the trans-utopian experiences a space earthquake, which decreases efficiency of their antimatter by 50%, which is quite impressive, really, since only recently their supply of antimatter was 0.0. Anywho, it was caused by some electromagnetic surge that originated beyond the solar system. Percy and Marcus will have to solve the engine problem en route, however, because they're on their way to Carry Station for a commission. The station administrator informs them that they were working with a lethal virus. A former employee, Quinnell, stole a vial of the virus enclosed in a security box. Their mission, should they decide to accept it, is to find Quinnell, recover the box, and return it to Carry Station all without the authorities getting wind of the situation. Travis recognizes Quinnell as a member of the Fetter clan of raiders. They track him to Clark Station and capture him easily while crapping, but not before he slips the box to a random stranger in the next stall, as you do in those circumstances. The folks at Carey's Station want Quinnell, but the box is more important, largely because they're afraid of their backers. They're funded by The Orchard, and they're a bunch of humorless hard-noses that will kill them if they find out they've blundered. Quinnell has a secret scanner-proof transmitter and notifies his confederates on Clark Station about the identity of the man who has the box, which they can presumably identify by Quinnell's description of his ankles and perhaps a name tag stitched to his dropped trousers. The fugitive steals ship, and chase is given by the raiders who conveniently encounter the trans-utopian, because space isn't really that big. See also how did an electromagnetic surge from another solar system arrive and affect this solar system so quickly. Travis and the gang make quick work of disabling the raider ship and rescue the guy with the box. They're on to him. He's just a punk kid, so they lock him up too, after relieving him of the box. Travis questions the raider who explains that he doesn't know what the box contains, but that it's something big. Some of his clan discovered something was up, and they were killed for it. He infiltrated Carries to steal the box for the defense of his clan. This has the ring of truth to Travis, and he instructs Caravaggio to open the box. Meanwhile, Marcus discovers the signature of negative energy a theoretical thing that might be an enormous energy source and hold the secret of faster-than-light travel. He found the signature while studying the ongoing problem associated with the ship's engines. They also find the signature coming from the box. Inside the box is a sort of flight data recorder showing information on the destruction of the planet in the other solar system, which, coincidentally, will destroy that entire solar system. Travis takes them back to Carrie's station, but makes some alternate plans. The folks at Carrie's don't plan on letting the trans-utopian crew to leave alive. 
They get their money, delivering the box and Quinnell. Then, while the Carries people are trying to double-cross them, they use the secret transmitter to execute an escape plan, escaping with Quinnell. The box they returned was empty. Carrie's station is destroyed by the orchard, and Travis and the gang contemplate whether or not the backers will pursue them. Now, you're going to try to tell me that he knew that guy in the shitter next to him, right? Because I thought I heard you starting to say something at that point along the way. Okay. No. Okay. I just had one thought as you were talking, and it is an unanswered question in the episode. How much time passed between the opening of the episode, before the opening credits, and, and the quake? After, yeah, and after, yes. I, I, I gave some pondering to that as well, and this show is pretty good about uh, uh, putting up a time thing on their screen in the past when, you know, six months later or something when they, when it actually matters and it matters here, right? Because it fits an electromagnetic magnetic wave, electromagnetic waves work at the speed of light and yeah. therefore at absolute bare, bare minimum 4.37 years for the effects to be felt. Okay. Right. Cause that's the right. absolute nearest solar system with planets in it. It's actually the, absolute nearest solar system for that matter, go, as well um just just since i'm on it and i've got it right here in front of me just so that we we know the nearest solar system is alpha centauri which yes. is a trinary system featuring uh centauri a and b both of which are visible to the eye but are so close that they appear as one uh centauri a might have a planet but it also might be an anomaly and Centauri C, the third star, which is also Proxima Centauri, is a red dwarf. It has two planets, Proxima B, its Earth size, and in the habitable zone, and was discovered in 2016. And Proxima C is a super-Earth planet at 1.5 AU's distance from the star, and that was discovered in 2019. So, nearest solar system, it's also our nearest star. So we've, we've got a target for our long-range explorations of the universe uh, when the time comes i didn't know about proxima b i didn't know they had an earth size in the habitable zone uh so i'm i'm all psyched about that yeah i've always i've always been worried that you know we're gonna finally go all right fine we can get we can get 70 percent of the speed of light we can uh we can get somebody there in 10 15 years okay but what if there's nothing there (laughs) no we know there's something there yeah, now we know there's at least something there. So if they go out there and don't find anything worth visiting, I then, yeah. But there you go. Anyway. All right, I have a question about a plot. Go ahead. Point that you may be able to answer. It might have something to do with the Redux version. I don't know. Uh, in the final scenes, Rodolfo and Percy know it is the orchard. And Travis and Fetter dude Quinnell don't seem to have a clue. Exactly. And I don't see that there was anything spoken in any way that Rudolfo or Percy would know it's the orchard. Rudolfo did all the research and he did not find that out. So why why did they say that was the orchard? Why did in that scene? Why did would they've had they dealings by name? Right, they've had dealings a decade ago, 15 years ago with an organization that had to do with something completely It's like unless you just want to use orchard as the mafia as just any criminal enterprise. But there was nothing there that said that was 
the orchard. I mean, you don't think there aren't like a dozen evil organizations in this scummy universe? Except, like, except Dr. Schofield says so. Not to, not to Percy or no, Rudolfo. No, I know he says it to the audience. That's my point. Yes, Rudolfo does. and Percy don't know it. Yeah. We do, the audience. But that was like, unless there was something cut out. I think my, every time I've seen this episode, I figured out that these two characters just understood this by the process of e processing of, of, of eliminating who else would have been behind it and say, so it comes down to the orchard. Uh, that's okay. I, I, I don't see the evidence in the show and I certainly don't think the Rudolfo or Percy is smart enough to even narrow it down. Um, uh, but okay, I'll, I'll take it, but there's, there's nothing in the effort. I didn't miss anything in the ev- episode No, where they, they actually came up with that. Okay. All right. While, while we're on the, while we're on the, how long did it take for the, uh, the electromagnetic wave to get to our solar system? There is just a whole lot of questions that that whole scenario opens up. Were, were the guys watching that explosion in real time when at the beginning and they're going, okay, five, four, three, two, one, boom, did or did they have to wait four and a half years? Or did they have to wait four and a half yeah. years for their signal to get there and four and a half years for their now, signal I thought to about come this. back? I did think about this deeply. And they were, they were watching it in real time. That's one answer to a question. And then the answer to how they were able to do that and to get the data recorder. You're going to say so, they have faster than light. So quickly, no. Um, okay. The answer may come in two episodes and i'm going to be very careful about this because i know about the word a spoiler yeah okay <clears throat> all right certainly it seems like a huge plot hole as it stands right that's right. that would if if they have a if they have a way to do this then you don't put Chekhov's gun in act four when you use it in act two right <laughs> right <laughs> you don't introduce it later you're supposed to do it in advance. Here, it just seems like a whole lot of this makes no sense. How, was the box there? I'm not sure what the data recorder was in. I think the box was probably not in the box. Or okay, the data recorder was the data recorder there because he said it yes. was. It looked like a data recorder for a flight recorder, but it wasn't in a ship. Yeah, it was obviously in a uh, in a spot to see the planet explode. Mm. Okay. So that means it had to be four plus light years away from Earth or our solar system as well. Right. Yeah, all of that stretches stretches the credibility a bit uh, as, Except as we watch Except um, in, 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 in isolation from some certain subsequent episodes, yes, it does. But then we, I'm going to slot this into the second half of the second season. I know exactly how um, the orchard could, how Keras, actually the kid, they probably, I should say, the, the Keras group could do this. Okay. But two, but the two, the two words are spoiler alert. Okay. That, that's, we won't, we won't go there. We'll just leave it as a glaringly nasty plot hole that they're going to retcon later. But so, okay. Speaking of that. Uh, I kind of went back through my notes. I certainly didn't go back and watch the episodes because 
I have episodes of In Search of to watch for stimulation. Um, I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, they have a busted antimatter drive. They have no antimatter. They're searching for a way for something to put in antimatter. How the hell is it that their antimatter drive's not working? Their antimatter's down 50% in this episode. Because he called it antimatter. He did. He absolutely called it antimatter. And I think the answer to this question is uh, Bad Wolf. Ah, first season, new Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I think this is somebody in management said, okay, we're going to do this thing with, like, antimatter drive towards the end, which I know the end episode is hyperspace, therefore, you know, is titled like hyperspace. So we're going to do this thing. So work antimatter, ship antimatter engines, work that into your story so people know it's coming. But they didn't give them any consistency at all because... Everything I'm getting out of this is different from episode to episode. And I tried to put it together in my mind and say they they needed a part and they didn't get it. And then between episodes, let's pretend like they got it and they didn't tell us. So now they got the part. Then they need antimatter. But then they had that thing where they were going to try to put diesel fuel in their antimatter and cubic zirconia. And they didn't get that. And then right. somewhere along the line, they did get antimatter. They did get the engine working. And now it's only working at 50% capacity. It's like, maybe you could pretend like they were building the thing between episodes. But it's really weird that they make no mention of the fact that they're actually making progress. They just talk about all the problems they have in the way. And... I would say I'm baffled, but I'm not baffled. They're baffled. Okay. I'm paying attention. They're baffled. And they're not paying attention. Fair enough. <sighs> so, you know, next week, what will they be after? Antimatter again or apart or... No, 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 no. Or will it all be up and kicking on? Remember when they were impressed by those guys just three or four weeks ago? They've got an antimatter engine. Yes. Look at that big pile of antimatter out the back. Whoa, I wish we that. had something like that. <laughs> like, I you do, that. apparently. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then the other one that really kind of got me, and maybe this is also a Star Hunter to Star Hunter Redux situation, uh, but as we go into the final sequence, they, uh, I'm going to call it a tractor beam, but I think they called it a magnetogravimetric beam. It was, it, was ba- it was more or less a, a tractor beam. Tractor beam. So they don't want the transutopian to leave, so they lock them into a tractor beam. And they say, hope you don't mind, we're bringing you in. And they go, no, that's fine, knowing full well this is a trap. Again, yeah. points to Travis, at least he knows it's a trap. Uh, so, great, thanks, no problem, we'll, uh, we'll come on over in the shuttle. And then when the transutopian escapes, it's docked, because it rips the side off the station. It does. Why did they not just you know, cross over on the airlock instead of the shuttle. I don't quite Fair understand question. the logistics of this. Uh, and I was just wondering if maybe, maybe they, when, and unfortunately the dialogue does say actually bring them into dock, but yeah. maybe they meant to bring them to a standoff position off no, the but, station. But that, that's your answer right there. It's that uh, as far, as far as why, why the ship was docked, because uh, the carriers docked them, but, I'm not sure why the screenwriter, whose name was, I'll tell you in a moment, Barry Simner, had them come over on a shuttle. Okay, because I thought maybe in the original version they just didn't 
they didn't dock, and they were using no. stock footage of when they ripped off no, no. Clark Station earlier. No. And I did notice that at the end of the episode, when the Orchard ship showed up, that a piece of the station was still missing. Oh, okay. Okay. I almost blinked and missed that whole scene um, at that point. That, that one went pretty quick. It was like, wait, who's that? Firing, boom, station blown up. Oh, uh, must have been the Orchard. Okay. Kind of, it, it swung by quite, quite quickly. Yeah, I, I don't know. There definitely was oddities to the logistics. And, and also, okay, so let's carry that a step forward. They knew they were going to try to destroy the Transutopians, so they brought them in and docked them up against their space station. Did they know that the Transutopians' engines weren't working at 100%? No. So therefore, they should have known the Transutopian could have ripped their station in shreds at the push of a button. It It seems like... It doesn't seem like the greatest way to snare a spaceship. No, and yeah, but blow it up. Yeah, blow it up sounds like a great way to snare a space station. My understanding, within the context of the story, is that they're planning to kill the crew and then dispose of the ship. Well, I guess these guys obviously haven't got the greatest of security plans because of they 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 let a raider in. Yep, they let a raider in that Travis can identify by sight, they who have, oddly enough yeah. can't recognize Travis by sight. That is an odd one, but yeah, and he doesn't even know that Travis was not even a doesn't even know that Travis used to be a raider. Yep, you'd have made a great raider. I've been told that. Yeah, it's like okay, uh, that's a. I, I actually wanted to ask you a question about that. Go ahead. The raiders kind of seem like good guys in this. They, I made a note about this. Yes, I said that Quinnell is the voice of reason. Yeah, he's not He's not doing this, well, unless he's lying. He doesn't seem to be doing this to uh, snag power. He seems to be doing this to, yes, grab power, but in a defensive way, uh, okay. away from somebody else for the for the benefit of his clan. And I'm, are they trying to rehabilitate the Raiders a little bit? Because they, they haven't been, they haven't been too, they've been all over the board from the beginning of the series, whether they're child nappers or earth destroyers or drug runners or you know they're all over the place but this time not only did they seem benign but you know travis is pretty pally with a guy at the end there yeah i'm looking at the list of i'm looking at the list of episodes here coming up and actually i don't think there are raiders in any of the other episodes as i recall hmm. I'm not sure if it's an attempt to rehabilitate them, but maybe just say that they're not as bad as these respectable scientists. Well, you know, scientists are evil in science fiction. That's right. uh, that's the way that works. Um, I, you know, I do have questions uh, that, you know, looking at the looking at the 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 questions about the speed of light and real-time information from another solar system. Those look like plot holes to me, okay? That, that doesn't right. look like foreshadowing for something coming up. But, but what does look like foreshadowing of something coming up is why they would care to have a weapon that can destroy a planet and why they would destroy a planet. And it, the way Caravaggio describes it, it kind of sounds like they destroyed a planet that would intentionally take out the rest of the solar system. 
I don't know, maybe that was an unintended consequence, but the way he said it... It did sound that way, yes. It did sound that way. And you go, well, why would you do that unless you have identified an existential threat that is from that solar system or another, perhaps, and this was just a testing ground kind of thing. So that feels like something that is foreshadowing a future event. Like, oh, it's the home planet of the Divinity Cluster people, or, uh, which, you know, has obviously not come to fruition in the 15 years between series. Um, So we haven't all been taken over by space cocoon butterflies uh, from, from trans-dimensional space. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that part, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem like something that you'd be developing so that you would have it to use at home. I mean, yes, science, you know, in the context of television shows, scientists are the most amoral, evil villains the universe has ever known. And they're probably sitting back thinking, well, if I can blow up a planet and ruin the solar system, everyone will listen to me and I'll run the place the good way because me scientist. But, you know, it it does seem like, again, it's, it's on par with the Daleks reality bomb. It's just an incredibly stupid plot device. It's like, oh, I'm gonna, I've, I've created a weapon that will absolutely destroy all of us, including me. <laughs> it's like, yeah. so dare me to use it. Dare right. me to use it. Oh, it's, um, well, it sounds like overkill. Yeah, just, just on a, on a tad. And then there is the whole. It damages their engine, reduces its power to fifty percent, and they make some comment about it. I, I forgot what the exact wording was, but they, they made something about it messing with the messing with the inners or something. It drained it. Yeah. Again, doesn't really seem like a good thing because wouldn't it have done it to them too and, and, and the orchard and, and everybody else? I mean, that sounds like a bad... Why, why wasn't the Raidership or the Scout or anybody else suffering this problem? Just a fair the, question. And, and, and tra- they said it was widespread, so... Yes, and, ha- but how, and how widespread and how far widespread is widespread? I don't know. Well, you got to figure that if it can make it all the way from another solar system to anywhere in our solar system, yeah. it can probably make it the rest of the way. Probably so. <laughs> so, and, and, and a whole lot further. Uh, I mean, were there lights flickering on the moon? Yeah. Yeah, did, did, where else did this, where else did this have impact? And I don't, I also don't get what the, the two solutions were. I mean, I know they were tectombabble, so, right? But one was we're gonna wire some stuff directly up, and that got us up. That's very dangerous, but it got us up to three quarters power. And then the other guy made some mistake on a pad. That was Kingman. Kingman, uh, and did something with dark matter, I think he said. He but I'm not he, sure if he was lying. He said, he said dark matter, yes. And and then that got them up to 100% power. How does that make any sense? And did everybody else in the solar system have to do that to get their engines back to power too? I don't... It just really... Uh, it, it seems like the kind of thing that maybe would raise an incredibly high level of alert everywhere. Therefore, a counterproductive plan. Yeah. It, it, I mean, maybe it was an unintended side effect. But, but that notwithstanding, it did happen. 
why wasn't I mean that would be like if if everyone on earth if power went down 50% all our electricity generation and all that stuff I mean that would cause widespread problems that would cause I mean every organization scientific government everyone would be locked 100% into what the heck was going on that would be a, a planetary emergency. It would be like if the whale space probe arrived and, and was sucking the power out of the planet. It would, be, it's like, it, it would it, you know, it, it is, there's really no evidence of it being anything other than a curiosity that's inconveniencing the transutopian. Even though they, they pay it lip service that it's causing consternation or whatever, whatever the word they used for the, for the rest of the peoples. It just, yeah, it kind of feels like that would have uh, put the absolute cat amongst the pigeons everywhere yeah yeah I, I... oh i do have a I'm going to go back to an an older topic here i wrote this down i don't know why i didn't bring it up earlier but here it is the solar system is the ha, is the solar system of pulsar 1342 that was where they had the planet blowing up pulsar 1342 yes and how did you get that info the original episode Oh, pre, pre-redux. Yes. Uh, um, and where did that bit of information come? Dialogue in the beginning of the, of the uncut version. Before they, before they blew it up? Yes. Kind of thing. Okay. Huh. I wonder why they would remove that. Time? Speed? Huh. I don't know. All right. Well, at least then we know it's not Alpha Centauri. Yeah. Because there are no pulsars anywhere near us. Right? Right. Exactly. Uh, nearest so pulsar to Earth is 800 light years away. <laughs> so, okay. And it's called Gamenga. Huh. Okay. Well, actually, that says it's one of the nearest pulsars to Earth. So uh, there might be a neutron star 400 light years away. Oh, it's just uh, a little detail. And I did type in pulsar 1342 into Google and it didn't get a distance Mm. is it a real one let me see here it there is something called let me read this directly pulsar j 1342 plus 2822 b in the globular cluster m3 that's another galaxy yes that's a really long distance That's a, that's a very long way away so it could be that could be that pulsar 1342 is just a made up you, yeah, right. I'm gonna guess, and I wonder if that's why they took it out. Yeah, good. Oh, been. somebody's gonna look this up. <laughs> turns, <laughs> turns out there is one, and it's a, a bit of a ways off. Yeah, they'll never buy that for light speed reaching us <laughs> in that time. But, uh, but yeah, yeah. So yeah, mm, okay, okay. The other scene that I want to ask you about. Or I just want to comment on. I don't. I don't have a question about it. I. I just. Okay. Percy's sitting there looking sulky, and Rudolfo comes along, and as far as I can say, the dialogue is about as deep as eh, things and stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, talk to you later. Bye bye. I don't think it was any deeper than that. Um. What was that about? I just. It was an odd one, not to have <laughs> cut. 
Yeah, I think, okay, I think leave in Pulsar J1342, but cut the weird scene between Rudolfo and Percy. Unless that was supposed to be character building, but I mean, it was so... There's a reason... There's a reason that television doesn't mimic real life. And I will absolutely agree that I've had conversations with people, you know, brief momentary conversations that have been that facile and inane. I have and, too. Uh, but, you know, I, I wouldn't commit it to paper. <laughs> no. It reminds me of um, um, some of the older television shows where, uh, well, I, I know I've, I've heard you talk about this, where those old Columbos, where we, we saw Columbo driving. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you nowadays you wouldn't do that. No. You, you could just get in the car and then you could wake up at the other location. Uh, unless, unless, you know, he needed to hear something on the radio or he had a passenger in the car or right. something like that. But yeah, it, it was, it was an odd scene. And the only thing that I could think of, uh, and I was, I was trying because it felt so deliberate and knowing that this is Star Hunter Redux and that they could have removed it, it felt to me like maybe we're trying to build a little rapport between Rudolfo and Percy. Possibly for future yeah. uh, aspect, and it's just like, who is it that's going to go check up on Percy? It's Rudolfo because he's the one who cares. Whereas typically, it seems like it would be Marcus. It would, because he seems to be the one that's interested in in Percy uh, in in some capacity. I also, um, speaking of that odd scene, not a bad odd scene, but but also out of character for kind of this show so maybe it's this particular writer it's the bit where percy's complaining about travis being bossy i remember that um first it sounds like she's just being a bitch about it because it's really stupid criticism you're you're in a you're in a danger situation and things look like they've changed so he tells her to put the weapons on and so she puts the weapons on and then and then they don't use the weapons because the situation changes. But Travis then goes on and says, maintain weapons at ready. And this is what she starts complaining about him being bossy. It's like, no, that, that seems like a fairly reasonable, you know, we all see things are changing. Just want you to know, let's just keep those guns ready. Okay. That, that, that doesn't seem like, I mean, he's the, he is acting as captain of this ship. Percy has never made any evidence of being acting captain of this ship. So it, it, it's a reasonable one. She complains. And I felt like, boy, this is really off. Then they cut to the second half of that scene, and it seems like it was a joke. Right? Percy's yeah. kind of, suddenly it's a good-natured, oh, you're being bossy again. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, but... And, and they, it's, it's like those two are trying to bond in that moment. And I... It's like, okay, these are these are just, all right. I don't know what they're going for here. I don't know. Well, let's take about, while we're talking about writing, let's talk about the writer. That name kind of vaguely sounds familiar. but I uh, have Barry Simner's IMDb page in front of me. I don't know how well you know some of these British shows. I'm just going to read these off. He wrote 16 episodes of The Bill. Okay, I, I know of The Bill. I've never seen an episode in my life. Cop show. Yeah, he okay. wrote 12 episodes of The Vice. Also cop show. Not, I've not seen it, but I'm aware of it. He wrote two episodes of something called Holby City. 
uh, hospital show. Yeah. Okay. He wrote, he wrote one episode of Midsummer Murders. I might have seen that one. Uh, the House in the Woods. That. Wait, that's a. That's a. I want to say it's like a. I don't want to say it's a Josh Whedon film, but it isn't that the one with no, the, no, the. No, the House in the Woods is the episode title. Oh, oh, of, of Midsummer Murders. Murders. Okay. Yes. That there was some sort of horror film by that. There name, probably was. And then uh, he wrote 13 episodes of Single-Handed. I have no idea. I have never heard that one. No. It's funny, the name is familiar, but I I certainly would not be paying attention. It is a police show. I'm looking, apparently it's a police show. Huh, pattern there. (laughs) Pattern there. Midsummer Murders is, uh, you know, is an amateur detective, as I recall. Or is it amateur or is it a retired cop or something? I don't remember what it is. But it's definitely a, as you would think with a title, it is it is a detective show, not a how-to. Right. <laughs> yes. It's like the Great English Bake Off or Midsummer Murders. It's uh, We get a team, they commit murders, we decide who did the best one. That kind of thing. That might sell. Wow. Oh, if anybody's listening, you can have that idea. I just want to see it made. <laughs> okay. Reality TV to a new level. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, no. All right. Um, it's, uh, so he's pride, predominantly a British writer, though. Yes. That has not been generally the case with the writers, has it? They've been Canadian. They've been Canadian for the most part. Yeah. Huh. Well, French Canadian. A lot of those. Yes. I, I'll give him this though. He managed to work the line. No. Dr. Schofield realizing he his goose was cooked. It's cooked. It's cooked. I think we want to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. Yeah. So do they release the information? No. They don't release the information. Interesting. That's, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we'll have to see where that goes. But, but, I, mean, that but I can tell like you this. The, thing to do. the orchard does come after them. Oh, I, I had no doubt about that. Um I had no doubt about that. Uh, it will be interesting to see whether this orchard bears any resemblance whatsoever to the previous orchard, or whether it's orchard in name only. And by the way, who in their right mind says, you know, I'm going to set up a research facility that works on benefits to mankind and medical research and, and goodness and niceness, and then calls it carries. I was about to mention that. Yes. Given the mythological reference to blood sucking spirits. Yeah, the daughter yeah. of the daughters of, of um uh oh I can't think of it now. But you know, the the the, the underworld, Hades, uh, and I think. Yeah. Wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's it's not not really good. Not Ceres. Not Ceres C E R E S Carries K E R E S. The, Which uh, their, font, their font sucks, by the, the way, at the beginning. Yes. The Carries were female spirits who performed the will of the fates and specialized in unpleasant ways of dying, such as violence and disease. Yeah, I believe their benefit to mankind. I, 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 yeah. You know, we used to, we used to name, I don't know if this, this is, used to be a thing when you worked in a data center. You would come up with a theme, and when you would name servers, you would you would follow that theme. I, I think that practice has fallen into disfavor 
because you don't want people to get clues about what your servers do. Right. And you don't want them to be easy to, like, suss out what it might be. So I think now you're you're going with very generic names, like you would passwords. But our data center used to be mythology. Mm-hmm. All ours. So, like, uh, the email server was... Uh, the the you know a messenger god and the the firewall server was a, a a warrior and you know all of those kinds of things you would you just plow through all the mythology and find something that would kind of fit with the theme of that particular uh functionality and go with it as sort of like the patron patron mythological saint of your of your server so yeah when i hear something like carrie's Particularly because we used to use mythology. You go, yeah, no, that can't be good. Just, just that is just n- no, <laughs> no. Yeah. They are not good guys. They are nope. Exactly. Nope. And speaking of not being good guys, uh, Schofield oozes sliminess. Schofield's the older of the two, right? The the head one. Yes. I I actually thought that the secondary guy oozed a little more sliminess, but maybe he was just more villainous. They both it was they both exude yeah. sliminess, but but Schofield has more dialogue. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah, perhaps a little, perhaps a little caricaturish. Maybe even that might might just go out there on a limb and say there might just have been a little bit of caricatures. You know, I mean, I there's a lot of uh, as as always. <laughs> As always with this show, there, there seems to be a lot of to pick on, and there seems to be a lot of. It just feels like carelessness in the production to me. But I didn't, I didn't dislike the episode, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't one of those ones where I wanted to claw my eyes out while I was watching it. It was like, okay, I, I, every once in a while they would raise the sort of flag of weight. That doesn't make any sense, and that that does that'll draw me out of a show pretty fast um but it was you know it was all right it it moved along at a reasonable pace uh the bit with kingman was kind of weird i tried to retcon i tried to retcon him in as being because there is this line about so is that what marcus was like and and i got to thinking it's like maybe he's an apprentice raider maybe he was maybe he was quinnell's pal and he was sitting in the next stall over because they both needed to have bowel movement at the same moment time no. and then i'm like but then why would he run away if he's a clan member he should have yeah he should have just carried on unless he was a clan member who's a crook and so therefore he betrayed but it just it just didn't fit right and none of it just fit and it's like what what is this guy doing in this episode and then his contribution to fixing the engines there's that whole sequence about him bragging about how he could double the capacity of the engines but he doesn't do it intentionally he he does it with a mistake he didn't even know what he was doing right. so even that just just odd he's this <laughs> he's this guy uh, what to 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 steal a line from um uh, from 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 Douglas Adams he's just this guy you know yeah yeah he's just this guy yeah i and there he is so uh, and i was i was watching the episode again a few hours ago and looking at him and i'm thinking I could see him on. It looks like it looks like someone I could see on the street. Uh, well, I, yes, although he wasn't wearing a mask. But uh, yeah, yeah, um. <laughs> yeah. But by just a wardrobe and kind of, oh, you mean the clothes? Yeah, I mean he the clothes. He looks just a, a bit, guy. Just, just yeah, a guy. Just, they just 
grabbed him off the street and said, here, be in this episode for us, would you? Uh, unless he was, you know, supposed to be somebody we recognized and you're supposed to go, oh, yeah, cool. Oh, you know that? You know what we're missing? We're what? missing a treat here is like Percy should get the opportunity to go see a Billy Tsunami old folks reunion tour. Right, because he's fifteen. He's fifteen years out of date now. It's just like the Stones doing one of their tours, long after they stopped doing anything interesting musically, right. <laughs> or any other band, Paul and Oates, Steely Dan, whoever. <laughs> still, it's still touring. Yeah, yeah. The 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 Beach. Well, I don't think the Beach Boys are still touring, but yeah. Um, so yeah. Either that. Do you have anything? Either that, or either that, or or a really stummy tribute band. I don't know. Beatlemania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was thinking about um, a topic from the previous episode of this series. Uh, we were talking about um, attire, and uh, uh, especially uh, if neckties were going to last oh, yeah. until 2300. Uh, did you notice what uh, the scientists at the Keras group were not wearing uh, well, I'm going to guess they were not wearing ties, but no, I didn't mm. notice it. They were not wearing ties. Uh, they were wearing these uh, white shirts with really big lapels, and appears to be this and a metallic ring. Hmm. I, I noticed that they were wearing light colored clothes, and my my brain said, "Oh, they're wearing space clothes." Yeah. I am. I am absolutely not a clothes noticer. In in my life, um, okay. But there's, there's there's this metal ring that hangs loosely uh, around the neck, about where the top of a necktie would be. Hmm. Well, I guess they had a little budget for costumes for that one, and they they right. blew it and couldn't get to Kingman. Yeah, he's just wearing his street clothes. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like Fader was or Quinnell was wearing a kind of ordinary leather jacket kind of thing. Yeah, it's which blending has been in. pretty standard procedure. For the Raiders, uh, throughout most of the episodes, lately. yes, exactly. I, you know, I don't have any problem with that. I really don't. I I think that one of the like doors, you know, like stupid doors on space stations, space clothes are often dumb. I mean, I, I <laughs> you know, sometimes they just. I get fashion is has no function, and so therefore I can look at. I can look at space clothes and I can go, I can buy that more than I can buy the stupid door shape. But at the same time, it's like, really? It, 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 it's probably going to conform to certain reasonable similarities to what we have now. Maybe, maybe not. There was a period during the 80s when you could get, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a period during the 80s where you could get a lot of uh, casual wear that was asymmetrical. Yes, Right, to me that looked like space clothes, so I loved that period of clothing. <laughs> yes, I remember Ooh, that. Hey, I feel like I feel like I'm in space 1999 here because I've got one arm that's different from the other arm, and it's and it's not right down the middle; it's off to the side. And but uh, yeah, <laughs> so so I can't say for a fact that space clothes won't be stupid because 80s clothes were stupid. But yes, they were. <laughs> but um, they were they were yeah. better they were better than seventies plaid or yeah plaid leisure suit would just be oh, a, uh, oh my <laughs> yes <Yeah>. yes <laughs> the only other um, p- 
point that I noticed today on the on the watch was, uh, did those Keras Group security guards look a bit Blake look a bit like the Federation on Blake Seven? Uh, weren't they orange? Well, I wasn't going orange for the, and black. Yes, I wasn't going for the color so much. It was just the, the whole. There was oh, there was something how much, I, how much I don't. Covered? I don't know that I would have thought of Blake Seven. They certainly looked familiar. I I didn't think they looked bad. You know, yeah. a little again, a little weird. Well, they they like, looked right. they looked fairly well designed as far as that went. As if they cost more than two bucks. But <laughs> the idea is that they looked rather well threatening. They definitely looked like security, right? They did not yeah. need to be wearing guns for me to know they were security. So it worked, I guess. It kind of, you know, the Blake Seven thing. I never got this, but uh, I was told this in some article, not, not in person, but that the effect was intended to be a skull. Oh. The Blake Seven bit, because the visor would kind of expand out the face, and then the, as it would come down to the jaw, that would give it that kind of inward look that you get from a skull. Never in a million years would I have picked that up on my own, if it's true. But, yeah, all right. You know, it, it does kind of have that effect. And so I, I can kind of see that in this, too. There there definitely is something death menacing about the way that they're they're laid out. And, this, and that bla- the black over their faces. Yeah. Yeah, so you're anonymous and probably can reuse extras. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't have anything else on this episode. I do not. The next episode is A Stitch in Time. A Stitch in Time. Dun, dun, dun. All right. And the um, and the preview at the end of this episode did give away the major plot point in it. <laughs> not... Not the best uh, best thing for them to do. Kenneth, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fusion Patrol, we hope you'll consider supporting us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol or buymeacoffee.com slash fusion patrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently doing a special series on Season 2 of Babylon 5. There's over a decade of previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on our website or Twitter. You can also find some of our other works at SoundCloud.com slash FusionPatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amberwolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.